Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. This is Declan Garvey, editor of the Morning Dispatch. And today we're going to talk about the cosmos. Last week, NASA released the first images captured by the James Webb Space Telescope, and they are spectacular. From the gravitational interactions between a grouping of galaxies to a star-forming region in the Carina Nebula, the Space Telescope, the most powerful of its kind and nearly three decades in the making, is giving researchers a glimpse into depths of the universe previously considered unthinkable, and it's only just getting started. The JWST is a remarkable scientific achievement and one that belongs to hundreds upon hundreds of astronomers, physicists, and engineers at NASA and both the European and Canadian space agencies. On today's episode, I had the privilege of speaking with two people who've been working on the project from the beginning. Dr. John Mather is a Nobel Prize winning astrophysicist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center studying infrared astronomy and cosmology and has served as the senior project scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope since 1995. Dr. Scott Acton is a physicist at Ball Aerospace and has spent the last 20 years as the JWST's wavefront sensing and control scientist. Dr. Mather and Dr. Acton brought unique perspectives to the discussion, addressing questions about the telescope, both theoretical and mechanical, and I really enjoyed talking to them about the history of the project, how the JWST operates, and what this future of space exploration holds. Dr. Mather, Dr. Acton, welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. Good to be here. The uh, the only person who, who might be more excited than uh, I am for this conversation is five-year-old me who, who spent his summer attending a uh, space camp at, at Northwestern University for kids. Um, but I'm hoping that we can have uh, a much more higher-level, in-depth conversation here today that doesn't involve uh, coat hangers and styrofoam balls uh, and, and a, a little bit more more uh, in-depth science. So um, before we jump in, I, I, I first want to just congratulate you both on uh, the remarkable success of, of this telescope, what we've seen the past couple days. Um, I can only imagine, you know, the the emotions that you've been experiencing these these past six months since the launch and, and then these past few days uh, as the, the first pictures from the telescope have been published. Um, just for listeners who, who don't know, you've both devoted decades of your life to this project. Um, it's something that, you know, obviously means a, a tremendous amount to you, both on a professional level and, and I'm sure on a personal level. Um, so I'll, I'll start with you, Dr. Mather. Can you try and explain what, what you felt when you first saw those images earlier this month? Well, I was thrilled to see how beautiful they are. Uh, because although you know what you're going to look at, you just don't know what they're really going to look like. So they are so gorgeous. And not only that, they show us the telescope is working perfectly, even better than we ever hoped. And um, the universe is cooperating by having things to tell us that we had never been able to see or measure before. So all at once, suddenly we went from we hardly know to now we don't know everything. And I am so thrilled with that. It's amazing. It really is. Uh, and, and Dr. Acton, I know your role in the mission kind of wrapped up a few weeks before the images went public. Can you talk a little bit about what it was you were doing these past couple months? And do you have any particularly 
fond memories of realizing things were finally squared away with the telescope and you could relax a little bit? Yes, uh, that was a lot of fun. So um, my role is or was, I'm very, very quickly becoming was, uh, because we're pretty much done, uh, was the Wavefront Sensing and Control Scientist for the, the project. So over the course of two decades, uh, you know, me and obviously a team of people we, we worked with put together a system that would allow us to basically focus the telescope after launch. Now, I say focus, and everybody is familiar with the idea. You have a knob, and you turn it, and it changes how the image looks. But imagine focusing, but you've got about 100 knobs you need to turn. Uh, so, so that's what we're doing. We're aligning and phasing the telescope, or focus if you prefer, uh, after launch. And we finished that just uh, basically right at the end of April, and then in the middle of May, uh, roughly. And uh, it was pretty exciting. And uh, where were you when you when you first saw these images? Did you react the way that you expected you would? Yeah, that was a, a really uh, magical moment because uh, uh, Marshall Perrin, who's with the Space Telescope Science Institute, uh, had this idea. Says let's let's set up the the data pipeline so that no human being gets to see these images until they appear on this computer in the conference room where everybody on the project that could cram into there was there watching the screen. And so I got to see them, uh, Dr. Mather got to see them all, the, the very first people to saw them all saw them at the same time. And it was fantastic, it was fabulous. Um, you know, we had uh, intentionally sort of saturated the, the prime star in that image so that we could see all the background things and just the galaxies that came out of that. Uh, one of our team members has taken that very first image and carefully extracted all the galaxies in there and made a poster. <laughs> and it's, uh, I can send you a copy of that if you'd like. Uh, but there were 250 galaxies in that first image. Incredible. And one of them even has a what looks like a supernova going on in it. Uh, I'm not sure about that, but I'll, that's the story I'm sticking with. <laughs> and uh, uh, it was just an amazing time uh, to have all the management there, all the people that worked on this forever, and to be able to say, we know how to do this. Uh, there, there are galaxies every. There's no dark sky. I think I remember saying someone hearing saying that. So. Yeah, from uh, what I've read the past few days, it it basically seems like this telescope can pull out this infrared light through space dust and and capture it in a way that, with some tweaking, um, is is perceptible to the human eye. And and what might look like a dark sky, we're we're learning, is actually not so dark at all. Um, I, I want to take a quick step back before we dive into the nuts and bolts of the telescope itself and talk a little bit about the history of the project. Uh, either one of you could could answer these questions. I'm sure you've both been involved for some time now, but how was the JWST conceived uh, and, and what was the impetus for it um, you know, in, in the 1990s and, and why did we need something more powerful than the Hubble Space Telescope? Okay, well, I started by not working on this project back in 1989. We were about to launch the COBE satellite to measure the Big Bang and measure the cosmic microwave radiation that's left over from those earliest moments. And uh, so the Hubble was getting ready to be launched at the same time. Uh, so I, well, my eyes and thoughts were completely on the cosmic background radiation. So uh, other people, however, at that same time, were already looking ahead to what would we need after the Hubble was up there and they said, we're going to need a big telescope, more powerful than Hubble, that can pick up infrared light. So they knew 
way, way back that that's what we needed to do because that was going to be the next opportunity for science, the things that Hubble could never see because Hubble is warm and that we could never see from the ground either because the air is warm and also kind of opaque at many wavelengths. So they knew what we needed to do and I wasn't paying any attention at all. But in, by 1995, we had fixed the Hubble telescope after it was not in focus, learned how to focus a telescope in space, and we got some pictures that said, oh man, this is exactly what we have to do next. We got a picture of the most distant universe. It was called the Hubble Deep Field, and it had thousands and thousands of galaxies in it, and it was gorgeous. And there were little red dots on there that said, this is as far as we can see back in time and far out in space as we can see. And you know, it's not quite far enough because we want to know what happened before that. How did the first galaxies grow from the Big Bang? And now we had a picture of the Big Bang. We knew what to do, uh, and now it's time to do it. So people wrote a book, and then uh, as soon as I was done uh, with the COBE project, then I got a phone call. Would you like to work on this new telescope? And of course, I said, yes, that's the coolest. That's the most important thing I could possibly imagine to work on. So that's what I've been doing ever since. You know, like um, pretty much any project of, of this size and, and scope, it ended up taking longer and, and costing more money than initially estimated. I, I think the final price tag came in at around $10 billion or so. Obviously, I think we can all say now that that was time and money well spent. But what were some of the biggest challenges that cropped up over the course of the project that added those years and, and additional expenses? Um, and how were you able to overcome them? Well, um, in a sense, they weren't really additional expenses. They were just, we did not understand at the beginning how hard this project really was going to be. Uh, and you just couldn't possibly figure it out um, by thought alone. You have to go start and start, try to build something and see what you don't know. And then when you don't know it, you have to solve that problem. So we made out a plan and then we uh, got along to 2002. We had a contract with a big company uh, which was TRW and then bought by Northrop Grumman. So all of a sudden, now we have a contract and uh, we can put serious effort into this and say, okay, now what did you mean when you wrote that? And so now work out a better plan, a more detailed plan. And oh, well, there were quite a few things that we didn't include properly in those first days, especially how to test the telescope. Uh, we learned that the plan that we all had was not good enough. And so we better change it. So, Scott, were you involved in that part, in uh, changing the test plan? Oh, no, it was not. Um, I, I was around when that happened. Uh, but fortunately, I was able to defer to people like Lee Feinberg and, uh, to work out all the details. Yeah. Anyway, we, a complete change of plan. And we had to find a different vacuum tank to put it in and uh, change the way that we were going to do the job. And, oh, well, that was hard. So as it ended up, by the way, we did that test um, in, uh, during, during Hurricane Harvey in Texas. So we got four feet of rain on the outside of the building while our telescope was perfectly happy inside the vacuum tank. But everybody else got wet. So <laughs> we survived it and we learned what we needed to do. The telescope worked fine and we sent it on to the next step in California to be attached to the spacecraft bus, which is the the box that has all the rocket engines and, and transmitters and receivers and antennas and solar arrays and, and the uh, gigantic uh, sunshade, we call it, which is a huge umbrella that protects the telescope from the heat of the sun and the earth. So it was quite dramatic. 
but anyway, that's just a hint to tell you why it took a little bit longer and cost a little bit more, a lot more than what people first imagined. Well, I, I like to say that, you know, I suppose on any project, you can always, in hindsight, go back and see what you might have done differently to save money. There's probably a little bit of that, but for the most part, I just think that's what this telescope takes. Uh, that's what it takes to build a telescope like this. Yeah, especially when you're on the cutting edge and, and frontier like this, you don't necessarily know what exactly it is you're trying to build until you build it. Um, and on that building process, Dr. Acton, I, I know a lot of your most important work happened after the telescope was launched, but what was your day-to-day -day like during the construction process and getting things ready for the launch late last year? Well, you know, uh, prior to the launch, I think uh, my life and my role looked like just about anyone's. I, I went to a lot of meetings. I talked a lot on the telephone and I sat in front of a computer and I typed. <laughs> and that's what we did for two decades. Uh, a lot of traveling too, because, uh, you know, you'd have to get people in the same room if you're going to get anybody to agree on anything. Um, but uh, I suppose the product, you know, what what we came up with could be summarized in the form of documentation, you know, procedures, steps that we're going to follow, and computer software uh, that contains all of these, uh, you know, very complicated uh, algorithms uh, and, and, you know, approaches to uh, to start with a, a randomly deployed telescope and end up with what we have today. And so since the launch, I guess it was December 2021, um, the telescope had to travel to orbit the sun at uh, the, the second Lagrange point, if I have that right. And uh, once it was there, that's when your role kind of came to the fore. You had to set up the sensors and tweak them so the telescope could take the images that we've seen the past few days. Yes, that's right. I mean, and of course, there's a whole team of us that were working on this. Um, but uh, we, we we had to start by by deploying everything. And of course, those tense moments that I'm sure you're quite familiar with uh, the animations and just everybody was thrilled to death. Uh, you know, like I said, I like the worry. And uh, the program manager, Bill Oaks, uh, did an interview. I think it was on 60 Minutes where he said he was 100 percent certain that everything was going to work. And, you know, he was right. <laughs> he really was right. I was very concerned. I was giving it maybe in the high 50s percent, but uh, uh, I was wrong. And everything did work. Uh, but then the next thing we had to do was deploy the mirror segments. So all those segments in the secondary mirror are sitting on top of actuators. And they have to be moved about a half of an inch out of their stowed position for launch to where they need to sit and operate uh, for the life of the observatory. And that's, that was a very slow process. Um, we would move just one little motor step at a time and then, and then maybe one motor revolution at a time and then uh, maybe a millimeter at a time. And, it, and, and somebody commented that the, process, that the mirrors were moving slower than, than grass grows. And uh, Jane Rigby, uh, one of her program scientists, uh, made us uh, a chia web. You know, like a chia pet, but it was shaped like the Webb telescope. We watered it, and sure enough, it grew faster than the mirrors deployed. Uh, they were, she was right. And so that's when we began. Uh, as the, the telescope reached a temperature that would allow the detectors to, to operate on the science cameras, we, we went through the various steps, um, starting off with things quite a bit warmer than they were supposed to be, but good enough to do the initial steps. And uh, it's just literally just like... Uh, following a procedure or it's a, you know, 
baking something in the oven and you know you have your ingredients you have the steps and if you follow it right and you think it through carefully it's going to work and lo and behold it did so once the sun shield is deployed the mirrors are aligned um dr mather what does the telescope actually do to capture the images that were published last week i know infrared light isn't visible to the human eye so the pictures have to be altered somewhat to uh, let us comprehend them but what is the actual process of capturing that infrared light how does it go from existing you know somewhere in the universe to becoming a, a, a jpeg that i can download on the internet and and make my laptop background there are a whole lot of steps the first one is that you have to decide where to point the telescope so we did that by soliciting proposals from the entire planet Anyone could send us an idea uh, with a description of what they wanted to see and why it was important. And then we had committees that read all these proposals, and there were well over a thousand of them. Okay, these are the most interesting uh, for today, uh, and we'll try these first. And so we made a big plan for that. And of course, you know when each one will be visible during the year. They're not all visible at the same time. So make a general plan. And then you get ready. And so um, we knew from advance, well, how to focus, uh, sorry, how to set up the, all of the cameras and the equipment. We've got filters to choose. We've got uh, a spectrometer to set up, which spreads out the light of, the, of a star or a galaxy into a rainbow. Uh, lots of choices to make. And so we did all of those. And then we put it in, uh, in the catalog of what we wanted to do. And now we are able to upload, that is to say, send a command list up to the telescope every day or this, what, this is what we want you to do. Uh, so that's sort of how it's done. Um, then after it's up there, uh, the commands are up there, then the telescope has a command processor. It says, okay, I took this picture, now what do I do next? And it goes on to the next one. And this, uh, it's got a stored list of commands and it does them all and uh, captures the data in an onboard memory. And then uh, once a day, or maybe more, depending on how well it works, uh, we send all the data back down to the Earth by radio. And it bounces around several times on the Earth before it gets back to our institute in Baltimore, where we transform it in all those computer bits go into uh, numbers that mean something to astronomers. So that's called calibration. And uh, then we produce images that uh, mean something even more so an astronomer can say, I see what I meant to see, and uh, begin to interpret it. So when it's in that form, then we put it in the archive, and astronomers from around the world can download it onto their own computers by, by, by the internet, and they say, now I see my picture, uh, and I'll get it ready for public release, because we can already see uh, people are releasing their data every day, because they got something so pretty, they can't hold on to it any longer. So. Yeah, uh, that's sort of the process. You could ask, maybe you did already, how do you make the colors? So of course, web telescope sees colors you can't see. So what we usually do is we say, well, okay, the shorter wavelengths uh, look blue to human eyes and the longer wavelengths look red. So we'll make similar colors when we make our artificial colors. So even the infrared light will have the shorter wavelength will show you as blue and the longer wavelength will show you as red. And once in a while, we have something special to say, well, this particular color means a particular compound or chemical way out there, some particular ion or molecule or is out there. So then we make artificial colors and we give you the picture. And then uh, astronomers have a good time saying this is what it needs. 
I I imagine that uh, each of you have a favorite picture that's come in thus far. I think mine is the Carina Nebula. Uh, that's what I see every time I open up my laptop or iPad now. But do either of you have a particular image that that you find yourself coming back to time and again? Mine actually, I have to confess, is the Mormon engineering image. Uh, recently, one of the last things we did uh, before officially turning the observatory over and saying it was fully commissioned uh, was something called the thermal slew test. And part of this process was to ensure that the observatory wasn't rolling. So they took images on one of the guider instruments. It's not really a science instrument. It's more of an engineering tool. It's there to help stabilize the telescope. 20-minute integrations on this on, on this guider image, but they did it about 90 times. And even just one of those images, as you can imagine, a six and a half meter telescope, cryogenic, sensitive from one to five microns and no filters is going to reveal a lot of anything you're looking at. Uh, but when you add 90 of those together, you get the deepest image ever taken. And that was just amazing to be able to see that and just to stretch the image and see all those just countless galaxies in the background. I sent this to a, a galactic astronomer at UCLA, and he estimated that single image contained 15,000 galaxies. And that's my favorite. Yeah, and if I could uh, append to that, to that, the reason I knew to look there was, uh, if I could just say, uh, to understand the ways the, the memory works on the spacecraft, if you take an image and it goes into a buffer, and then it stays there until the next image is taken and it pushes it out, kind of a first in, first out thing. And sometimes the last image of your observing sequence will stay in that buffer. Well, the, the ground software won't process the images until it has all of them. So you don't want to wait. I mean, you'd get it eventually, but you don't want to wait. So what you do is in your observing program, you the very last image you take is a complete throwaway image. Yeah, so even this is even before we were done phasing the telescope, but we snuck in a... 40 second integration on one of these guiders just so we could flush the buffer. And eventually that image came down and I stretched the contrast on that. And that image, that single image had 500 galaxies in it. That, that experience actually moved me to tears. I'm, I'm not ashamed to say. And because I knew in that moment that every image taken by Webb was going to be a double heat, a, a Hubble heat field, uh, just loaded with information. Um, yeah, it was quite a, quite an emotional experience to, to see those first images. Yeah, I've, I've, I've seen someone describe it in recent days as though even if you're just taking a picture of a planet in our solar system with the Webb telescope, all these other galaxies are going to basically end up like photobombing Mars or, or wherever because of the depth that it's able to capture. Um, Dr. Dr. Mather, do you have a, a favorite image from the telescope so far? I do. The, uh, the one that got my attention is the one that turned into people's t-shirts and the like, um, because uh, it's the uh, image we took of Stefan's Quintet, which has uh, five galaxies in it, uh, four of them inter interacting with each other. One of them has a black hole in the middle with uh, stuff falling in, and so it's shining very brightly. Uh, the, the, one of the galaxies is very nearby, and you can even see the individual stars in it. And this one's made its way into uh, a a merged image with um, Van Gogh's Starry Night. And so you can get it on a t-shirt. People have sent me this picture. It is so beautiful. It is connecting us with the artistic beauty um, and imagination that people have had for so long. So um, we are a cultural phenomenon now. 
I could, yeah, it's, uh, you've the, the amount of attention and, and, uh, a kind of admiration that that NASA and, and this entire field has gotten the past couple of weeks. I'm sure it's been uh, fun to to kind of see your work recognized in in that way. Um, but you know, the, the, this telescope is also it's producing beautiful images, but they're also so much more than that. You know, they have uh, immense meaning and and uh, present op- incredible opportunities for scientific discovery. Uh, Dr. Mather, could you talk a little bit about you know? At, at, at a fifth grade level, when, when we're looking at these pictures from, you know, thousands of light years away, what is it that we're actually seeing? Okay. Um, when we look at things, uh, even with just our own eyes, we look at things as they were when light was sent to us, not as they are at this very moment. So even looking at the sun, you see it as it was about 500 seconds ago. So we've got a time machine in our eyes always. We just don't think about it. So when you look at things that are really, really, really far away, you're looking way back towards the beginnings of time, if there is such a thing. And uh, so you see the universe as it was very young. So we had altogether four major themes of things we wanted to look at with the telescope. Uh, What are the first things that grew from the Big Bang? Uh, The first stars, the first galaxies, the first black holes. Um, There's something astronomers called the cosmic dark ages. Uh, which is the time between the image we have of the Big Bang with the COBE satellite and others now, and the first objects that grew that turned on to send out their own light. So then how do the galaxies uh, grow? So it seems that our Milky Way galaxy and all the others are made out of thousands of little bits that came together by the force of gravity. So how did that go? Uh, And in particular, uh, since we can't really look at the history of our own galaxy, how can you look at others to determine what our history might have been. Close up, uh, when you see the Carina Nebula, that beautiful cloud with glowing things in it uh, and bright stars, uh, you can begin to understand how the stars are, are being formed today. So right now, new stars are being born right there and with planets, probably. Uh, so we want to look inside and see everything we can learn about the formation of new stars and planets. And really close up, we want to see the planets around other stars and the ones in our own solar system to begin to understand how did that happen. So how is it possible that Earth occurs here? We seem to be a very rare phenomenon in the universe. We've looked at lots of other planetary systems, and none of them are like home, uh, which is a bit interesting and disappointing because it would be easy to imagine uh, that other stars with their planetary systems would be like ours, but they're not. Uh, You know, here in the solar system, we have four little rocky planets in the middle and then uh, a gap for the asteroids and then uh, four gigantic gaseous planets that are way out there and a lot colder. Uh, We do not see anything like that uh, around other stars yet. So we're special, uh, but nevertheless, we'd really like to know whether we are really, really, really alone or only that the neighbors are very far away. So... uh, Are those little planets out there capable of hosting life? Well, we probably can't tell if they do have life with a web, but we could tell if they have atmospheres and maybe oceans. So we're going to be looking for that, and that would be uh, something to answer that cosmic itch. Well, where did we come from? And and are we alone? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost impossible for me to imagine looking at these images and what they represent, how many galaxies there are pictured, um, that we can truly be the only life out there. But it's exciting to think about what, what discoveries could be coming next. What questions uh, 
will the Webb telescope be able to answer that the Hubble telescope could not? Okay. Um, we designed it to do everything you could never do with Hubble or with telescopes on the ground. So infrared lets you see farther back in time, farther out in space, because that's what the expanding universe does to the wavelengths of light. Um, we can look inside those dust clouds because infrared can go around dust grains and not just bounce off them. Uh, and infrared can pick up uh, heat radiation, that is to say, uh, from things that are not warm enough to emit visible light like the sun. So things that are too cool. So those three big categories let us examine a whole new universe. And that's why it looks so different uh, from the Hubble pictures. Got it. Got it. And by the way, I wanted to say it also turns out to work even better than we ever hoped at short wavelengths where we do overlap with Hubble. Thanks to Scott and his buddies that made it better than it had to be. Um, just a little bit, but it's a, so much better that uh, we are thrilled. It's so much better. Uh, we promised a certain degree of performance uh, where the number to get was two, and we got down to about 1.2, and that's much better, uh, extremely much better. So we get much sharper pictures at all wavelengths than Hubble could do. Dr. Acton, when we spoke a couple months ago, right after the launch of the telescope, you told me about a process where the JWST could essentially take, I think it was multiple pictures capturing multiple angles of a planet. And if scientists stitch those together in a particular way, they'd be able to gather a little bit more information about the atmosphere of that planet and, uh, and what could potentially be there. Do I, do I have that right? Yes, absolutely. Although I'm, I'm faking it here and, and, and Dr. Matthew could probably embellishes, but you're referring to differential spectroscopy, where you can't see the planet, but you know there's one there. Um, so if you know the ephemeris or how the planet is orbiting the star, and the star, the planet goes in front of the star, you can take uh, several different, there are a couple different spectra. You can take one where the planet is behind the star, you can take one where the planet's off to the side, and one where the planet is in front of the star. And by combining those together and subtracting, if you're very, very careful and very, very clever, you can determine what that planet, the spectrum of, of light is, off, is reflecting off of that planet or maybe even possibly going through its atmosphere. And I think you saw an example of that uh, in the early release observations based on your spectrum. Got it. Got it. Well, just to to zoom out on the conversation a little bit before we wrap up here, I, I want to talk a little bit about the international aspect of this. NASA obviously played a, a key role in, in the telescope, but it was a collaboration with the European and Canadian space agencies. What was it like working with scientists from across the world? And do you think that the, the future of space exploration is more globalized like this? Sure. Well, we started off uh, with the instruction from NASA headquarters to please build an international team to do this because we make the telescope available to everyone in the world and we'd like the people to use it to be able to contribute to it. So eventually we negotiated a partnership where Europe would contribute the rocket to launch the vehicle uh, and they would contribute uh, one of the instruments and half of another. Uh, the partnership in, with Canada included the fine guidance sensor, which is the thing that locks onto a guide star and makes sure we get sharp pictures and also another uh, scientific instrument. So. Um, then we did this and we got to do things that were probably too hard for any one country to do alone. Um, so that's one of the things that collaboration enables. Uh, when, when you get into trouble, 
it's good to have friends. And when you've already made a plan, uh, you're not going to disappoint your partners and say, well, we give up now. Uh, we're going to say, we're going to finish this because we said we would. And, and so it's much more powerful than it would have been. And we got to finish it too, and not to be scared off by difficulty. Definitely. And uh, Dr. Acton, you said something when we spoke a few months ago that's stuck with me since, that the interest in the JWST and SpaceX Blue Origin, to a certain extent, have, quote, reopened the window for space exploration, Um, you know, making things possible now that uh, we maybe not wouldn't have been able to dream of in, in the 1990s. Obviously, we haven't had someone on the moon in decades, but do you think that the enthusiasm generated by these pictures and, and these other projects will have broader ramifications for the, the future of space exploration? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you can just do a mental exercise. Ask yourself where we'd be if the telescope had not worked. <laughs> we'd be having a very different conversation right now. But the reality is we do know how to do this. Um, all those things that we envisioned to do in the late uh, you know, the, the mid-90s and stuff, we've now figured out, we know it. And I think the sky's the limit, and we're looking forward to the next telescope. Um, I've seen personally just in the minds and the attitudes of people over the past 20 years a, um, a dramatic change in terms of their attitudes about uh, space and its accessibility to humans. Uh, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm personally kind of encouraged. Uh, I really think uh, the... The interest in this, uh, my own my own granddaughter, you know, she's uh, quite a feminine little girl. She's seven years old. She's here with us in Montreal, uh, but uh, you know, she has pictures of astronauts on her wall. You know, female astronauts, and she tells you she's going to Mars. She's going to be the first woman to set foot on Mars, and and I find that very encouraging. That's uh, no, that's that's fantastic. And do you see? SpaceX, uh, kind of the, the public-private collaboration with SpaceX and the government as, as being our best shot at achieving that goal of, of sending someone to Mars? Well, so far, I've, uh, I've, I haven't seen uh, SpaceX do anything wrong. Um, they've been making just tremendous progress. Um, I think if he is successful in developing this super-heavy vehicle, vehicle uh, that the sky's the limit. You're going to find... Uh, you know, low Earth orbit being accessible at maybe $10 a kilogram. Uh, and of course, would be going to Mars now as to uh, whether or not a, a private company on its own without government uh, interest and assistance is the quickest way to get to Mars. I'm not, I'm not certain. Yeah, I, I think I uh, should mention that uh, basically everything NASA does is a public-private partnership because most of the money that we get, we spend on companies to help us do the things that we ask for. So the Webb Telescope is public-private partnership. Uh, we spend our money on contracts. Um, the rockets that NASA has been launching all these years, we buy them from companies. So it's just differences of exactly how we go at it. And I'm thrilled also to see the progress that um, SpaceX has been making because that super heavy lifter, well, it is enormous. And it is, it's, it's thrilling to imagine what it could do when we have it working. It, uh, it sure is. Well, uh, thank you both for your time today. I think I'll close with one last question for for each of you. Um, What potential discovery are you most excited about in the next 10 years now that we have the Webb Telescope up and running? What questions do you think we'll be able to answer that uh, we weren't able to before? Hmm. Okay. 
Um, well, I think, uh, number one, we've got big mysteries all along the way. Uh, the very first objects from after the Big Bang uh, have never been seen. So uh, we're just beginning to find them in the pictures, uh, but they're not really the very first ones. So uh, we've got a big mystery there. We've got cosmic dark matter, cosmic dark energy. Uh, nobody knows why they're there. We just know that they are there. Um, where did the first gigantic black holes come from? And, you know, every galaxy has a big one in the middle of uh, hundreds of millions to billions of masses of the sun all squeezed into a black hole. So nobody has figured out how that could have happened. Um, then uh, close to home, everything we know about planets has been a surprise. So I'm expecting surprises about planets. I don't know what they're going to be, but that's where I, I'm placing my bets for a surprise. That's why they're surprises. Yeah. Yeah, I'd have to say planets um, for me too. Uh, the next big telescope, you know, could answer the question, is there life on another planet? You know, life of some kind. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to do that, but yes is certainly one of the possibilities of the way we'll answer that question. And, and uh any luck, I'll be alive to, to see that telescope uh, built and commissioned. And, you know, we, we, who knows, we may have a very different perspective on our place in the universe. Can't wait to have that conversation. And, and one, more, one more thing to add, by the way, we are exploring Mars with the intent of bringing back some rocks to Earth. And uh, that's not so far off now. It's uh, quite a hard project, but it's definitely easier than sending people to Mars. So we are doing it. So in, in, uh, in some time, I don't know what the time is, we will have samples. And if you can look in uh, there with uh, your microscope and see uh, that looks like it was alive, that would be really exciting. Yeah, there, there could be, conceivably, could be life on Mars now in, in you know, subterranean water or something, or, or certainly maybe even fossilized life. So that might be the quickest avenue to potentially answer that question. Well, thank you again, both of you, for, for joining us on the Dispatch Podcast. I know uh, I was incredibly excited for this conversation. I know our listeners will be uh, as well. So thank you both for being here. You're welcome. Well, thank you, Declan. It was fun. Uh, good to see you, Scott. Good to see you too, John. Thanks.